1860, a woman named Sarah Josepha Hale was one of the most influential women in America. Writers and intellectuals courted her, prominent ministers asked for her help, Abraham Lincoln corresponded with her. She wrote 50 books in her lifetime and helped found Vassar College and build the Bunker Hill Monument. She also invented Thanksgiving and wrote Mary Had a Little Lamb. Today, though, practically no one knows who she was. Sarah Josepha Hale is probably most famous for editing Godey's Ladies Book. Between 1837 and 1860, it was the largest magazine in the U.S., and it was kind of like Vogue meets Vogue knitting. It brought Parisian fashion and home needlework patterns to, rough estimate, half a million women a month. Sarah had this unique editorial eye, but while her strengths as an editor, cultural commentator, and activist made Godey's wildly successful, her personal weaknesses would eventually destroy the magazine, and with it, her own place in history. I'm Alison Korleski, and you're listening to Fiber Nation, tales of textiles, craft, and culture. So before we meet Sarah, I need to tell you just a little more about Godey's Ladies Book. It ran from roughly 1837 to 1896, and I compared it to Vogue, but it was also the Martha Stewart and the Oprah magazine of its day, all in one issue. Today, it's known mostly for its fashion plates. These are these hand-tinted drawings of popular dress styles. But it was also sewing and knitting patterns, essays, recipes, short stories, pretty much anything you can imagine in a magazine. So that's Godey's in a nutshell. But what about this woman who put her stamp on it? I wanted to know more about the magazine. When I found out it was written and published and edited by a woman, I'm just like, holy crap, stop the presses. I need to know more about this person. That's Sophia Beaumont, a writer and fashion historian. So she was born in 1788 in New Hampshire, so she was New England progressive, born and bred. Well, at least for the time, she was pretty progressive. Her father had been a captain in the Continental Army. That is, the guys that George Washington led. Both of her parents believed in women's education up to a point, and Sarah followed the rather predictable path of becoming a schoolteacher before she married David Hale, a lawyer. Her married life also seems to have followed a predictable path, she capably ran a household and had five children before her husband's untimely death in 1822. They'd been married about nine years, and she was left with no income, five children, and was just like, I don't know what to do at this point. Her liberal education became her lifeline, because like so many middle-class women of the time, she turned to writing to support herself and her family. So she started writing poetry for children and had those published, and that started to give her a little bit of an income to support herself. Writing was one of the very few occupations women could have at the time because it was something that they could do from home and presumably take care of their children at the same time. In 1827, Sarah wrote her first novel called Northwood, and it marked a turning point in her life. A big publisher in Boston was so impressed with Northwood that he invited her to move to Boston and edit his new magazine, just like out of the blue. 
So that turning point for Sarah became a turning point for American publishing. Because, okay, few things about magazine publishing in the 1800s. Most American magazines at the time, they were really just clipping services, lifting articles wholesale from multiple British magazines and then republishing them here. Basically, they were the journalistic version of a mixtape. Most of them were one or two person operations and they lasted at most a year or two. Sarah, though, was about to change that. She was the daughter of a revolutionary soldier, so the last thing she wanted to do was rely on British material for her magazine. She wanted each issue to be 100% American, and that meant she usually ended up writing at least half of the articles herself. Surprisingly for a ladies' magazine, though, there was one thing that Sarah did not want to write about, and that was fashion. She thought it was vain and silly and just a pointless waste of energy. In fact, when she did write about it, it was usually to say something snarky. And this applied to men as well. She even went after male facial hair. Whiskerados, these men sporting magnificent mustaches, they were nothing more than a waste of bear grease, in her opinion. Sarah herself was no fashion plate, though it's not fair to call her a frump. Images of her show a well-groomed brunette with dark eyes and a shy smile. Her clothes remain the same throughout her life, simple black dresses with white lace collars, cuffs, and a cap or hairnet. And while she wasn't a fashion fan, her simple appearance could also have been a more strategic move on her part, career-wise. But she was a middle-class businesswoman, and for her to be incredibly fashionable or out there would have been seen as gauche. Uh, very inappropriate for her position in society. Whatever she wore, Sarah definitely had a certain presence. Her granddaughter would write, When dressed for church, she was an imposing spectacle, rather like a duchess of fiction. Clothing was important to her in one big way, though. Making it allowed poor and widowed women to support themselves. Oh, I think it definitely did. She started a charity in Boston, the Sailor's Aid Society. And it was a charity. She started out to provide food and clothing for the widows and orphans of sailors. And after she started working with these women, she's like, they don't need charity. They need jobs. That's what would help them most. Sarah was a mass of contradictions. A Yankee blue stocking, she lobbied for women's education and property rights. But she also believed that women belonged in the home. And she also believed that if women had to work, they should have better conditions and earn a living wage. She felt that women were the intellectual equals of men, but also that they shouldn't be able to vote, because that took them out of the house and into politics. And in order to pursue a career where she could tell other women how to live, she'd abandoned four of her five children to relatives before moving to Boston with her eldest son. Sarah's signature move was to preach one thing and practice another. But she was really good at her job. Remember, most magazines of the time folded after a year, two at most. Sarah kept her first magazine going and growing for eight. And so she caught the notice of Louis Antoine Godey, a publisher in Philadelphia with a magazine of his own. And he had some very big ideas about publishing and women's fashion. So when Godey first approached Sarah... Godey's wasn't the phenomenon that it became. It was a popular magazine. It had been going on for a few years at that point. Godey wanted to do more. 
Louis Anton Godey was born in 1804, so he's a few years younger than her, and probably a bit more progressive. He wanted to make a blockbuster. He was basically like the P.T. Barnum of the publishing world, if that makes sense. <laughs> Godey pitched, Sarah listened, and she turned him down. And she was just like, no, I don't think so. I've got my own thing going here. I really don't want to take over somebody else's work. I don't want to be under somebody else's thumb. I'm good where I am. Part of it was that Godey's uh, magazine at the time was based in Philadelphia, and she didn't want to move. She wanted to stay in New England, and she was also a successful businesswoman, so I can't imagine her wanting to give that up to work for somebody else, especially at the time with there being so few opportunities for women. That would have been a huge sacrifice for her. She's had her taste of independence. She's making her own income. You know, she has no reason to give this up. She wasn't looking for a new job. He just approached her and asked her to take over. Not one to take no for an answer. Godey made a total power grab. He bought the magazine she edited and merged it with his own. Like it or not, Sarah worked for him now. And he'd outflanked her, but in a power move of her own, she demanded to remain in Boston while her son finished school. If you thought she shook things up in Boston, that was nothing compared to what would happen next. And I suspect a lot of you are wondering at this point, like, when do we get to the knitting and the sewing and all of the clothing stuff? That would be about now. You see, one of Godey's big ideas was fashion plates, those illustrations of current styles that I mentioned. And you can see samples of these on our show notes page. Victorian women wore a lot of clothing. Layers and layers of petticoats and corsets and hoop skirts or bustles, depending on the decade. And they wore tons and tons of doodads, knitted collars, knitted cuffs, crocheted hairnets, ribbons and lace and fringe draped everywhere. And trim was very important in the Victorian period because you could take a dress and put fringe along the yoke and a little bit of lace at the cuffs and do a ribbon belt and some ruffles along the bottom. And then the next season, you want to go to a fancy party, but you can't afford a new dress. So what do you do? You take last season's dress, you take off the fringe, add maybe an embroidered ribbon instead, uh, replace the lace with a different color of lace, or take it off and dye it. Or you could take off the ruffles or add lace to the ruffles. So the trim was how you would alter dresses from season to season. Women's clothing was very expensive because it took so much fabric and so much labor to make. And that's one of the reasons why these fashion plates were so popular was because it gave women ideas on how they could alter their existing wardrobes to be more fashionable, or they could create entirely new wardrobes if they had the means to do so. Louis Godey, he didn't invent the fashion plate. Plenty of other magazines had them, but he made the ones in his magazine super special because once you got your copy... And you would flip right to the middle, and that would be where all of your color fashion plates are. And these were hand-tinted. They were the only magazine that not only was printing fashion plates instead of just a description of the fashions, but they were printing color fashion plates, 
which nobody else was doing. Color technology back then was so expensive. They weren't printing in color. They were printing black and white, and then they had to hand tint it with watercolor. So that was the big selling point for Godey's. Now, you would think that an already innovative editor like Sarah would be all over this idea, and you would be wrong. Because as I mentioned earlier, Sarah hated fashion, and she most definitely did not want fashion plates in Godey's. In fact, this was one of the few times, besides buying up her original magazine and forcing her to work for him, that he overruled her. And that was a good thing, because those colored plates really put the magazine on the map. Big selling point or not, these things were a lot of work. Hand coloring those images took a lot of time, and Godey eventually employed an army of about 150 women to do it. Fun fact, because of this, the plates were often different colors from one copy of the magazine to the next. Some women collected and traded copies of the magazine, just like baseball cards. And this hand tinting process, it was one of the reasons that Godey's was so expensive. In fact, it was the most expensive magazine in America at that time. A year-long subscription cost a whopping $3. And to put this into perspective, the cover price of Godey's roughly equaled what a soldier would earn over one or two weeks of being shot at. That high price point meant that women passed each issue around. So you would want to exchange copies with all the other women you know, all the other subscribers, and see what theirs looked like. But then you might send your copy to your aunt who lives out of town and doesn't get all the latest news and fashion. And then she might read through it and then pass it on to the woman who does her cleaning for her. And then that maid might pass it on to her neighbor who can't afford a subscription. So it's estimated that every Godey's edition was read by between three to five women. The subscriber base was mostly upper middle class and upper class women, but the appeal to it was all over the place because no matter what level of society these women were at, they were very aspirational. And so having won his fashion war, Louis Godey now left the field. And once he started the magazine, he pretty much handed over all the reins to Sarah and then stepped back and just kind of counted his cash as it came in. But Godey's was more than just fashion. It was a whole experience. If you're familiar with like the mid-century variety shows that they used to have on TV, it was kind of like that in print form. So there would be essays on political stuff. There would be directions on the best way to can tomatoes. And then there might be a recipe later on of, you know, I don't know, an Indian curry that has recently come from India to England that is now all the rage at the Queen's table. There were also articles on self-improvement. There were knitting and sewing patterns and stories and poems. Sarah had an amazing editorial instinct, and she published some of the top writers of the day, from Nathaniel Hawthorne to Louisa May Alcott. She was good at discovering new talent, too. And she was definitely great at networking. She knew everybody in publishing. Everybody. I mean, Godey's was the magazine that launched a thousand careers. Godey's was one of the first places to print works by Edgar Allan Poe. Editors need to be tough. And Sarah's delicate, ladylike appearance was a foil for her steely work persona. If you look at comments on her rejected manuscripts, they ran from too flowery, to this subject is worn out, to my favorite, 
The writing is cramped, and writing in blue ink on blue paper is a trial of patience we hope Job himself never has to endure. Sarah was adamant about featuring women's writing in each issue, and some issues were completely devoted to women authors. Maybe she remembered her first few rocky years as a widow, supporting her family with her writing. Was she trying to help other women in the same situation? A lot of women wrote for magazines. There's a saying, especially in publishing, that throughout history, Anonymous has been a woman. Now, most of them would not have been like on-staff paid employees, but you had a lot of women who would submit poetry or a short article on an event that happened. They might write a short story. A lot of authors got their start that way, including Louise May Alcott. But while the magazine was admired for its literary acumen, the fashion plates are what paid the bills. And now we get to talk about fashion and fabrics and knitting in a lot more detail. Because those fashion plates weren't just for people buying fancy clothes, they were for people making them as well. A lot of these fashions were intended for you to make them yourself. So that's why they had the fashion plates. They would include embroidery patterns and needle lace patterns and knitting patterns and instructions on how to decorate a bonnet. So even if you couldn't take the fashion plate to a seamstress and say, I want you to make this in silk and I want the latest French lace and I want all of this hand embroidery and pearl beading, you could take a look at that shape and go to the dry goods store and pick up a nice cotton sateen maybe or a calico and adjust the shape slightly and then still have that fashion but modified for whatever your social class was. No matter your circumstances, even a dog-eared, tattered issue of Godey's helped you keep up on whatever terms you could afford. 1850 to 1860 was really the heyday for Godey's, as it spoke to white women across a range of classes in both the North and the South. But clouds were gathering on the horizon. Tension over slavery and secession were beginning to boil over. And in April 1861, the Civil War would begin. At the start of the war, Godey's had 150,000 subscribers. That would quickly change, though, but not for reasons you might think. Coming up after the break, learn how Sarah J. Hale, the powerhouse editor who created the golden age of Godey's Ladies Book, would become the force that destroyed it. We're back, and I'm about to tell you how things got very dark for Godey's. But before I do that, I need to take another detour and talk about the Singer sewing machine. Sarah may have disdained fashion, but she loved anything that made women's work easier, in the home or not. I read an essay by her where she goes nuts over a washing machine. So Sarah figured out that an average shirt requires 20,620 stitches to sew. Then she broke that down to the minute how long it would take to sew the shirt by hand versus by machine. And I have no idea how you count 20,000 stitches, but Sarah was definitely excited by this. Because the lower class women who supported themselves with needlework, they could make stuff a lot faster. Think back to her work with the Siemens Aid Society. She knew that many women had to earn a living and that it was really hard to do so. The sewing machine, it would let women earn and let them do it in their own homes. And okay, I'm speculating a bit here. 
But her embrace of the sewing machine also struck a blow against high fashion, at least against French and British fashion. Because remember, Sarah was the daughter of Yankee revolutionaries, and British or European anything really got under her skin. By promoting the sewing machine, adding sewing patterns to the magazine, and encouraging women to update the dresses they already owned, was Sarah deliberately trying to democratize fashion in a way? Or at least undercut those snooty Europeans? So, okay, back to the Civil War. Even before the war, Godey shrank from discussing slavery, abolition, or anything that they thought was too divisive. They even banned staff from writing about either topic. When Sarah discovered that an assistant editor wrote an anti-slavery article for a completely separate publication, she fired her. And this points to one of Sarah's fatal flaws. It wasn't just her saying one thing and doing another. It was her hubris, deciding what was best for her readers and her stubbornness in the face of change. When Sarah had started her job in Boston, a lot of people thought she wouldn't succeed. And yet she gritted her teeth and worked hard to prove them wrong. And that stubbornness, it helped her survive in the beginning. But then further on, I think it became more of set in her ways. And I think that is probably what finally started to do her in. As the Civil War loomed, both Lewis and Sarah made a really bad decision. And then they stuck to it. So both Godey and Hale um, agreed that they would not take a stance on the war, at least not in print. They both had their own political views, Sarah in particular. Um, she was very, very patriotic. But for her, the most important thing was about reuniting the nation. And it wasn't so much about abolition for them or North versus South. Obviously, Hale was very much a Yankee and she was against slavery, but it was about keeping the country together. Up to this point, Godies had succeeded in large part because they managed to be all things to all readers. Southern ladies had more emphasis on leisure on having other people do things for you. They were supposed to be well-bred. They were supposed to spend a lot more time on things like needlework and playing the piano. In the North, you have a lot of that puritanical hard work ethos, especially in places like Massachusetts, Philadelphia. You've got a higher Quaker population. So there's less of that emphasis on leisure time and having servants. You've got a lot more working class women, a lot more women working in factories earlier than you did in the South. From 1860 on, though, the reason women had flocked to Godey's became the reason they abandoned it. Godey's initially wanted to please every reader in some way, but now they were trying to not alienate any reader for any reason. And that pleased no one. So how do I put this? Wars are kind of a big deal. But if you look at any issue of Godey's from 1861 to 65, it's like the Civil War never existed. Both Lewis and Sarah decided that the magazine would be an oasis where readers could escape the war. And boy, did they misread the room on that. It was the biggest publication in the country 
and they were acting like nothing was happening. In a country that was increasingly fractured and with every faction demanding that Godis take a stance on the war and slavery, or even just acknowledging that it was happening, their stubborn silence was like the worst PR ever. Sarah's whole identity, remember, she's the daughter of revolutionaries, rested on this sort of sentimental nationalism, the idea that we're a single unified country. And that's one of the reasons when she wasn't busy editing a magazine, Sarah's hobbies were helping build national monuments and lobbying for a national day of Thanksgiving. Yeah, Sarah invented Thanksgiving. But that's another story. So when the South seceded from the North, you would have expected full-throated outrage from her and Godies, and instead you got nothing. Like, the Union wasn't under threat, or all it needed was some big kumbaya moment to heal it. In one of her essays, she writes, Citizens of all regions must make an effort to understand one another. Hearts and memories must preserve our political union. This milquetoast statement was not what people wanted to hear. Think about how divided our country is today. Try trotting out that statement the next time your super progressive cousin and Trump-supporting uncle go at it at your Thanksgiving. And she wrote that during a civil war. And this attitude turned people off. Now, obviously, not all of the drop in business was Sarah's fault, because there was a war going on, after all. Leading up to the Civil War with those tensions, there was some drop in subscription. You've got people tightening their belts in preparation for the war, so they're not buying these super expensive magazines. And then after the war starts, a lot of Southerners really dropped off their subscription rates because they didn't have the means. They couldn't get them past the the blockades. Mail from the North just wasn't getting through. But as the war dragged on, people wanted some sort of statement about why we were fighting, or even an acknowledgement that we were fighting. And Sarah refused to say anything. Even worse, she insisted her readers didn't want to hear anything. Sarah Hale was an abolitionist. It wasn't her stand against slavery necessarily that cost her readers. She did keep her personal views out of the magazine. The problem was that because there was so much animosity between the North and the South, and she refused to take a side, that it was like if you have a mother with two children and the children get in a fight, they can't reconcile, and then they both stopped speaking to the mother because she won't take their side. That's basically what happened with the Northern and Southern readers when she refused to join with one or the other. And eventually, Godies lost all relevance to many people's lives. They didn't have time for making bonnets and baking cakes and singing at the piano when they're taking care of the wounded. They don't have money for corn to make dinner. You know, they didn't like the escapist attitude that Sarah took the magazine in. You have all of these readers where their loved ones are dying, they're losing their homes, they've got family members coming back who are permanently maimed physically and psychologically, 
And this would be like the CNN of the time refusing to take a stance on the issue. By the end of the war, Godey's and Sarah's silence had cost the magazine over one-third of its readers. Like so many other institutions, Godey's never recovered from the Civil War. Its subscriptions continued to dwindle until Sarah retired in 1877 at the age of 89. Godey sold his publication that same year. The new owner changed the name to just Godey's Magazine and changed the content, removing much of what Sarah had championed. Sarah was effectively erased from the publication she had made famous. I asked Sophia if she thought Godey's could ever have staged a comeback. It's a hard one to answer. I think part, I think there are two main factors that kind of killed Godey's in the end, because it did last until the 1890s, but it was under different management. And Godey and Hale both retired within a year of each other. And anytime you have the two major heads of a business leave at the same time, that business ends up on really wobbly footing. When they started out in the 1840s, they weren't really competing against anyone. By 1860, though, this was no longer the case. Several magazines moved into Godey's spot. One of them, Ladies' Home Journal, is still published today. The fashion plates Godey was so famous for, they were slowly replaced by photography in the early 20th century. Several of Godey's innovations survived as magazines. Paid advertisements and copyrights are standard today, but they were scandalous when Godey first used them. Today, we see editorial echoes of the magazine everywhere, from essays and book criticism in The New Yorker, to fashion spreads in Vogue, to Martha Stewart's instructions on how to bake your own wedding cake. But no other magazine ever managed to combine literature, the latest fashion, and do-it-yourself lace patterns, all in one issue, month after month after month. The whole time I worked on this episode, Sarah really flummoxed me. She had an astounding literary career and helped lots of authors. She created Thanksgiving and wrote famous nursery rhymes. She espoused women's education and helped found Vassar College. But she was also a hypocrite and, in the end, her own worst enemy. This was something Sophia and I talked about a lot. Yeah, she didn't want women to vote. She wanted to send the slaves back to Africa. She is so full of contradictions. For example, she left her children behind because she couldn't take care of them while she was starting up this magazine. And then she refuses to support women's suffrage because she says women should be taking care of their children. And the more I've looked into her, the more it almost seems like she's trying to play both sides of the board. You know, she really wants to end slavery, but she doesn't want the slaves to stay here once they're free. She wants to shuffle them out somewhere where she doesn't have to look at them. Her hubris, her feeling that she knew what was best for her readers, even if they didn't, backfired in the end. Readers not only rejected the magazine, they rejected her. If Sarah had been the face of Godey's for over 30 years, it was a face they no longer cared to see. When I started this project, I knew Sarah only as this outsized figure who had done a rather amazing amount of things. Like Sophia says at the beginning of the episode, holy crap, I need to know more about this person. But what I found, I didn't necessarily like. But that's not Sarah's fault. That's mine. 
because I expected a flawless marble statue rather than a flesh and blood woman. People are very complex, and that's something that a lot of people today forget when they're researching historical figures. They want them to be very cut and dry. They see them as figures from a book, and they want to be able to fit them into neat little boxes. But you can't do that with people today. So there's no way you can do that with people from history, especially when no matter how much research we do, no matter what archival records we have, no matter how many letters or anecdotes that we have about that person, it's not possible to know everything about a person who lived 150 years ago. There's still going to be something that gets lost to the sands of time. The dynamo that had powered Godies for decades, Sarah died two years after leaving its helm. Her public silence on important issues and her refusal to adapt to a changing audience had destroyed her greatest achievement and undermined her own position as one of America's leading intellectuals. In the decades that followed, her legacy would largely be forgotten, except for one thing, still famous today. That same year, 1879, Thomas Edison would make the first speech ever recorded on his new invention, the phonograph, by reciting Mary Had a Little Lamb. Thank you for listening to Fiber Nation. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to rate us and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Allison Korleski, with co-production and audio engineering by Daisha Clay and mastering by Evan Rutherford. Thank you.